Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Recover Everything podcast, where we have honest discussions about everything in recovery and mental health. I'm your host, Chris West. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on all your major streaming platforms. Go to our website, recovereverything.com, to say hello and follow us on social media at Recover Everything. We got a few cool things planned in the future, and we hope to get the audience engaged. Our guest this episode is author of the book, American Fix, Inside the Opioid Addiction Crisis and How to End It, former White House staffer and creator of the Voices Project, Ryan Hampton. My co-host today is Chelsea Mone. Enjoy. would you say good content is uh i i think talking about um talking about it from a more impact standpoint you know i i think that a lot and also the i think the motivation behind marketing mm. ploys for for some for folks, agencies yeah too. for agencies yeah. and whatnot yeah well i'm definitely not connected to anybody that's good so I like this podcast. This is a quality <laughs> podcast then. Uh, <laughs> I mean, just a little basic information about us up front. I kind of see us as neutral ground for things. Uh-huh. Um, just like a platform to do your side, our, our whole... Love it. Uh, yeah, we. I mean, if we were under any type of umbrella, we wouldn't be able to have certain guests on. We wouldn't be able to talk sure. about some of the more controversial issues. So, I like how you say controversial. Did I say it wrong? <laughs> no, it just sounded so elegant. Thank you. Hilarious. I've been working on that. <laughs> um, so much start. Let's do it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Recover Everything podcast. I'm your host, Chris West. Today, we have Chelsea Mone. Hello, beautiful people. And our guest today, uh, author of American Fix, Inside the Opioid Addiction Crisis and How to Fix It, former White House staffer and creator of the Voices Project, Ryan Hampton. It's great to be here. How are you this morning, Ryan? I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm great, actually. I had a, had, a, had a good couple of days. Did uh, the Nevada's first recovery advocacy day, which brought me down here. And uh, What f- is that? Well, I'm fired up and ready to go. Yeah. yeah. What, what is Nevada recover, advocacy? Well, well recovery being day? that it was the first one, I mean, I think it was an inoculation for a lot of people who have never had... Um, the experience of meeting with legislators, talking to legislators, visiting folks in Carson City, um, you know, and I think it all starts with kind of like the power of your story, power of the face and voice of recovery. And, and I think we accomplished that very well yesterday. Uh, I think, you know, one of the most fascinating things, take, takeaways for me was uh, people who have never done that before, right? There was one guy who was there yesterday and he was like, I, this is like blowing my mind. He's like, you know, I've, I've, I've a member of my recovery group and, you know, in recovery for quite some time, but like showing up and talking to legislators and talking about legislation and talking about, uh, things we could be doing like outside of our own personal recovery program. He's like, this is all new to me. And he's like, my mind is just blown. So seeing that type of excitement and enthusiasm, uh, for recovery is like a social impact issue, uh, always, you know, fuels my, my fire. So I, I thought it was great. 
I would have to say I agree. So what does uh, the word advocacy actually mean? Uh, like what, what, what's the goal? What's the purpose? Well, I mean, I think, you know, and that, that's a good that's a good question that could go in a lot of different directions. Mm-hmm. I, I think uh, for me personally, so advocacy is, is uh, uh, you know, standing up and fighting for, for, for change. It's, it's giving voice to people who don't have voice. It's, uh, you know, working to change the, you know, system, the, the systemic problems that have led us into this public health crisis. It's, uh, you know, advocating, it could be advocating for things such as uh, more prevention, more treatment, more recovery supports, housing, employment, uh, you know, fighting discrimination and prejudice when it comes to people with substance use disorder, um, you know, and, and, and there's that definition of advocacy. Um, but then there's, you know, people who have kind of co-opted, I think, the word advocate as well. I agree. Uh, in the recovery space, which has been problematic. Um because I, I, and I think it's okay. I mean, you can be an advocate and do all these other things and be a marketer and all that. And that's great. But, uh, folks have like, you know, co-opted the word advocate to, to be attached to treatment. Um, you know, where, I mean, you could be a patient advocate, mm-hmm. you or know, cancer or, or, you know, and that, and that, and that would make sense to me. But, uh, I think the word recovery advocate, uh, is really much more encompassing of the social change around, advocating for recovery, which in my definition, uh, is not like advocating for people to like go to treatment. It's advocating for those long-term recovery supports for, you know, the housing, the employment, uh, the reform, all the, the reform, the reforms, all of that. Right. Correct. Um, so like you said, advocacy is kind of a buzzword in, in, in recovery. The word recovery is, is now like a commodity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've heard recovery is cool. When something becomes a, a commodity, there are uh, problems that arise, mm-hmm. uh, like capitalists and, and people that just want to capitalize on these. How does the average person not get cut up in that? And how do you personally stop these facilities and, and other places from making you a commodity? Right. That's a that's a really good question. Um, so I think there's two parts of that. Um First, I think that I, what I've seen in one of the great things is it is I've seen a lot of folks in recovery become social entrepreneurs, which doesn't necessarily make them a capitalist because uh, a lot of them aren't really attached to a facility or a company or anything like that. They've just gone out and they've utilized their recovery and their recovery story and their passion for recovery and their purpose uh, to become an entrepreneur. And a lot of them have done it through means of of bold media such as you know, writing a book or starting a podcast or starting a television show or being more open in their community or going to conferences and uh, speaking and receiving speaking fees and all of that. And I think that that's great, you know, and and I think that that's good. Um, On the other side of it, we have seen, you know, marketing organizations and centers and whatnot uh, attach themselves to these larger brands uh, people brands, um, in an effort to put the heads in beds and, and whatnot. And, and that has been problematic for me because, you know, I don't think it's more a problem on the provider side for me than it is the, 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 you know, the quote unquote influencer because it's usually, right. It's, it's usually the, the provider using the influencer because I, I, I have a lot of friends who do this. Right. So I have this conversation with them. Like, what are you doing? They're like, well, you know, I have, Mm -hmm. I I need a job and like, this is a great job and I'm helping people and I'm putting people into treatment. Um, 
some of them don't understand like you should never send your loved one to a treatment center based on a brand that's associated with <laughs> right. it. You know, Agreed. like like that that shouldn't be like a qualifier for like good treatment. Good treatment should stand on its own, you know, two legs. Um, but all of that aside, like this this question raises a a larger issue for me, which is uh, we have like such a, a a gap in job opportunities and employment opportunities and opportunity in general for people in recovery that I see a lot of my friends, a lot of, a lot of people that I know and that I love, the only job that is available to them mm-hmm. is to work in a treatment center or be a treatment center brand or whatnot. They can't get a normal job in corporate America, which right. is why I advocate for what I advocate for. Um, and some of them, you know, step outside of the treatment center space and become that social entrepreneur, which is great. And how I have dealt with it, and it has not been easy for me because look, I have bills to pay. I have a car yeah. payment, a part of a rent payment and all of that um, is to steer clear of like certain industries, you know, when it comes to this. Um, and, you so know, you, so you like vet, do you do like independent research on, on places that ask you to speak for them or well, well for the speaking do you, i mean usually lots a lot of it is a gut check like i'll know if it's like a good speaking opportunity or, yeah you can feel it um you know and and i work with like a speaker agency that like helps you know go through that and like provide me because it's like that also takes like a ton of time um but the vetting of of the people and and the organizations and the even the different like treatment centers I may show up and do something at or something like that that can get really murky and mm. and it's for me it's like really really frustrating because mm. it's like sometimes you think folks are like really on the up and up and it's like oh man it's like so heartbreaking in the end when you find out they're not right. and it, and 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 it's hard for us to have all that information you know because this is uh, an industry that needs so much reform. Mm-hmm. Um, has there been a scenario in which you, you did go talk to place and you don't have to name names or, or names of facilities, but where you did, you're like, Oh, this is bad. Oh God. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, certainly, I mean, yeah, there's places that I've visited where, you know, I've, I've received part of my, part of why I think I've been able to like build this platform though, too, is like, I have said yes to like every opportunity to go see something, check something out. Mm-hmm. Um, visit with clients, visit with centers, visit with, with, with people who are involved in the space. And I have walked away from plenty of meetings where I'm like, yeah, okay, that was very interesting, but I'm never coming back here again. <laughs> but it, but it's also served, you know, if you read the book, a lot of the information, yeah. So like a lot of the stories in the book, you know, uh, are from lived experience through, through things like that. I mean, it's been a learning experience for me too. So, um, I'm always, I'm always down to check something out and talk to somebody. And I say, You'll yes, give it a go. I'll give it a go. I, I say yes to pretty, I mean, and, and you know, my best friend is here with me and, and he'll tell you like, he, he, uh, I say yes way too much to people, <laughs> right? Like somebody calls me up, they got a great idea. They're excited yes. about something. It's recovery related. I'm like, yes, I'll come see it. You know, hey, thanks for coming. To see I know. This. I yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. You know? Yeah. So, um, but there's been, there's been tons of experiences like that. But I personally have, you know, it's a, it's a principles thing though, too, and mm-hmm. a recovery principles thing. And there's, you know, there's, there's certain principles that I do have and, and, and that's helped guide my decisions on a lot of this. Yeah. I would, I would love to start talking about his book. Oh, well, um, that, that, yeah. That's <laughs> okay. um, I'd like a quick, just for the listeners, um, quick rundown of your book. It's kind of a, a critique on 
the recovery industry in general and big pharma and facilities and patient brokering and, and all this madness. I was just going to ask what, what made you write the book? I, um, so I, I did this trip in 2016 where we, we went around the country and, and went into communities and visited with people and, uh, it was really kind of like the start of advocacy for me that led me to like meet all these organizations and great folks who are doing all this tremendous work. And, um, I, uh, you know, we put this, this thing called addiction across America out on YouTube and it got, it, it was fairly well received. And then about two years ago, you know, kind of like looking through all the books that were available on the topic, uh, you know, we had heard uh, Dreamland from Sam Quinones, which is mm -hmm. a really well-known book that was out on the opioid crisis. And mm -hmm. uh, there were some books that were written by some actors and kind of larger names about their personal journeys, but they didn't really... Like touch. Nikki Six. Yeah, like Nikki Six, exactly. But they didn't really touch on like the recovery aspect of it. And that's like a, a perfect example, right? Mm -hmm. Is like Nikki's book was like, and, and I read Nikki's book when I was in treatment in 2012 and, and, it, and it had an impact on me. But like now as a person in recovery... And I was very sick when I read that book, mm. right? But now as a person in recovery, like I, I, I look at it as like, there's not much out there about like the recovery story. Right. More importantly, there's not much out there about like, you know, how we got here and how we can get out mm -hmm. from the perspective of, perspective of someone who's gone through it, survived it, and like ended up on the other side in like a good spot. What we have, what we were seeing were like all these journalists and scientists and doctors and you know, people who didn't have this lived experience writing about our stories, right? And basically giving us the prescription for what we need to be doing. And I don't know about you, but like in the last three years, the one thing, last four years, the one thing that I've learned the most is like a lot of those people who have been giving those prescriptions for like what we need to be doing. Yes. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, but like we know what we need to be doing, sure. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? And so like, why isn't that voice out there? And right. so I went looking for that book um, to see if there was something like it. And there really wasn't. So you um, wrote one. Right. So I wrote one. Yeah. <laughs> so I wrote one. And and that was really the beginning of, of the book journey. And I remember sending it to the publishers and not, I wrote it as a concept, an idea, a pitch and, uh, sent it to publishers and, and didn't really think much of it after sending it. And they all came back and they were all very interested in it and said, you know, this was a, a perspective that they had not heard, uh, and had not been published and, and they really wanted to, to, to take it to market. I may be off on this question, but the beginning of your book, uh, I, I think is trying to create a certain fear in the reader about like what's going on, at least trying to scare them into paying attention. Do you think, uh, fear is a good tactic for awareness? So, uh, or information? Yeah. Maybe I wasn't not fear, but, yeah, uh, I wasn't trying to strike fear. Your um, truth. Right. I, it was more coming from, I mean, it was more my outrage. Sure. Right. So it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a sense of fear that that it wasn't from a place of fear that that was written. It was from a, a place of outrage and an outrage voice, because that is under the surface, like really how I feel like I wanted. But some of those to, stats and some of those stories are yeah. scary. And they're true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was like, I wanted to make sure that I, you know, really caught the reader at the top of the book with you know, a tone that was mm -hmm. serious and outrageous and was like, you know, the, this is how I feel. And, and this is why I'm doing this work. I mean, and this is why people are dying. And this is why people are dying. I mean, and, 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 you know, yes, like recovery works, it's possible. It's great. And like, everybody should have access to the supports that I've had. 
um, that which by the fact were a lot of them by luck and circumstance. Um, but this is what we're dealing with on a day to day basis. You know, I mean, we we hear about, let's say, like a bird flu or, or Zika, you know, one person yeah. there, there's a Zika outbreak and one person dies from let's say one person dies from Zika, you know, somewhere in Las Vegas, mm -hmm. they're going to there's going to be like a hazmat team oh, on sure. every single <laughs> block well, like a couple of measles and, cases here. And everybody's going crazy, yeah. right? So, you know, meanwhile, you know, we've got the the equivalent of like a jumbo jet plane, you know, falling out of the sky every three weeks. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we're having a hard time getting funding. <laughs> when you first started speaking out, uh, you say in your book that people didn't want you to. Right. People still don't want me to. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think that is? I think that, um, well, I know when I when I first started speaking out, particularly, you know, in my advocacy and what I, I think, I think that the general thought was like, you know, you're too young, mm. you don't know what you're talking about, you know, you're, you're, you just got sober a couple years ago. Um, you know, you, you don't know what you're, you're saying. You're not well seasoned. You, yeah, you're not yeah. well seasoned. And, 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 and that, there was like a fringe group that felt that way. And some of them still do. Like, I mean, I've still, you know, um, I'm, I'm subject to that type of like discrimination. Mm. I, I would say from like some of the older uh, folks, right. in, even within the, the context of the recovery movement. I mean, I had one this week who was like, oh, well, you know, we love all your digital advocacy. And I'm like, you do real like, and they're like, we haven't, you know, we haven't, this is like a large organization too. We haven't really had the ability to like reach as many people online and oh, make so this they emphasis don't have a online, page? <laughs> online as you, but we've been reaching, you know, people on the ground for like quite some time. And, um, it was like really frustrating to me because I was like, yeah, I mean, we're reaching people online, but like, we're also like those are real people that yeah. we work right. with. They're boots on the ground. They're not robots. They're not robots, <laughs> and like we're, we're we are, and they are taking action offline. Um, but like it, it I, I come across a lot of stuff like that. Mm. Is I there also, an age gap in these people? Or yeah, there's yeah. <laughs> well, it's like anything else. If you're older, you're wiser, right. right? Sure. I also get a lot of slack for you know tactics too. So it's like I, I think you know historically the recovery movement and rightly so has been very focused on storytelling face and voice of recovery type stuff and not necessarily too disruptive. And the, and the thinking behind that was that for so long, um, this issue didn't have any space at the decision-making table. And it really wasn't until late, you know, last five, 10 years, uh, that, that policymakers started inviting more lived experience folks in recovery mm -hmm. to come in and, and and participate in these discussions. And now that there's this seat on the table in the table that we kind of need to like, you know, mind ourselves and be polite and, right. you know, show up in a suit and tie and be agreeable and, and play the game, play the game, right. Play the game. Um, and, and I, I totally understand that. And I understand that for the people who have been involved in this movement that predate me even getting sober. However, you know, my recovery dates, February 2nd, 2015, I walked onto the, into the recovery movement on, you know, the heels of like losing a lot of friends to overdoses. Right. Um, the circumstances for like which they lost their lives was just maddening to me. And, um, while I appreciate all of that work and, and, and that place at the table that's been created and, and has allowed me a place at the table, um, I, I take a much more disruptive approach. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I also think that there's some historical precedent to that. And I also think that, um, it is working, you know, I mean, like 
I, 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 you I see results. Yeah, I absolutely. have seen results. Yeah. And, I, and a lot media, quicker. Yeah, yeah. And social media is a huge part in that too. To sure. Show the world that it is possible. Yep. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I think even our current president will tell you that. I mean, you know, I mean, there was the, 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 I mean, I mean, like him, love him, hate him, whatever. I mean, the 2016 election was really a paradigm shift for how social media was used in, 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 right. you know, in an election setting. And I think that you could look at, um, social justice movements. I mean, Occupy Wall Street, the right. Urban Spring, things like that. I mean, they all were formulated on social media sure. and then walked off of social media and, and, and happened in, in real life. Mm -hmm. um, and we we have both. I mean, that that's the beauty of this is it's like there's already an on-the-ground infrastructure that we're tapping into. Um, we're just using the power of social media, the power of digital tools to connect people because we've also you know, and I think it's important to note that that these are conversations that have not been historically easy for people to have in their communities mm -hmm. around addiction and recovery and substance use disorder. So it's, you know, you do see this phenomenon of more and more young people talking about these things on Facebook, talking about these things on online forums. So it's, 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 it, it, there's much more connective tissue there uh, to get them involved, um, get them trained, um, get them to a place where they're ready to, to then take an action uh, in the real world. You say you saw, you have seen, uh, the change, right? Uh, as for, um, awareness mm -hmm. or, um, awareness is great. Stigma. You've seen it dampen a little. Mm. No? <laughs> I mean, like I, it's definitely alive and well, I mean, for I've, sure. I've seen more people I've seen, I have seen it dampen a tad. I've seen, you know, as a result of more and more people being open about their recovery status, um, yes, I mean, we, we have, we have, you know, started to chip away at it, but societal shame and stigma is still very real, like very, very real. So I don't know this for sure, but I'm, I'm guessing that recovery is kind of like your whole, I'm not saying your whole life, but a huge part. Yep. Do you ever have to like be subjective to, to see the improvements, like take a step back out of it because you're so involved? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, is it I, hard to see sometimes the changes because you're doing it every day? Like watching water boil, you know what I'm saying? I think it's hard on both sides, actually. I think it's hard to see the, the improvements. And I think it's also sometimes hard um, to see how bad it is, too. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think, you know, it, it's it's a very fine line to walk because it's like you can be so optimistic about everything and, and you're surrounding yourself around people who are optimistic and who are working in this. Um, and sometimes it is a little defeating to like step outside of that box and like look at this thing as a whole and realize how much work we have to do, you know? Um, you know, but, but, but I do see that I am optimistic about the changes. I mean, but more, more so than like the changes, what really has, 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 has like lit this fire under me is how, impactful and the substantial amount of change that just a few mm -hmm. people can make. Right. Because, well, for example, like I, I think we're, you know, we're, we're such a large constituency and I think people really do want to make an impact and they want to get involved. They're just not organized enough to do it. Um, which is one of the things that, that, that I'm really focused on is organizing, giving people the tools to like empower them to lead, empower them to make change in their own communities, in their own States and on the federal level. 
Do you do, you do that just by talking to them? Like talking to them, trainings. Like we just like today, we're launching the 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 Mobilize Recovery Project, which we're bringing to Las Vegas in July, which is really this whole you know two day experience with all this continuity, education continuity after it to get people involved, teach them how to um, identify local issues, teach them how to talk to the media, teach them how to get legislation passed. Um, and the reason we're doing that is because I have seen on a federal level on a, you know, with Congress, I've seen it on a state level with state legislators, I've seen it on a county level with county commissioners, um, that when one, two, three, four, five, I mean, people get involved and, and want to make a change, they can get, look, look, they can get legislation passed. They can write legislation. They can write new city codes. They can write new state statutes. I mean, like you can get these things through. Uh, the problem is, is we haven't been showing up to do that. And so we've got this, you know, we're in this moment in time right now where the buzzword is like the opioid crisis, yeah. you know, and like it's everywhere. It, it, it's everywhere, but it's also become like an election issue. And it's mm -hmm. also become something where candidates are creating platforms on and it's they're a commodity. Doing, it's well. a commodity and they're doing these stump speeches and whatnot. And they want to do good by the community. I mean, I think genuinely these folks really want to want to end this thing. They just don't know how, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And so it's like, there's a lot of policy that's being written and a lot of money that's coming out and going to communities that does, isn't necessarily going to the right place because the right people aren't at the decision-making tables sure. advising how to do that. So in my own experience, I found like, oh, okay, like, well, that makes sense. Let's go talk to them. Let's go help them write this legislation. Let's go tell them where the gaps are and what we need to be doing. And I've been met with, um, you know, a, a, a lot of positive response on that. I mean, we've written housing legislation. We've written the patient brokering legislation. We had a huge hand in the HR6 work that was signed by Trump um, just by showing up and getting involved and not necessarily knowing all the, you know, the data and the stats and the figures behind everything, but knowing what the problem was having lived through it um, and helping to map out the solution to it. And so I think if more communities were organized like that and had those tools and understood how to walk through that process, sure, that we could get to to some solutions a lot quicker, you know. And so that's and it was it was frustrating for me because I do, as you mentioned in my bio, I do come from like a political organizer background mm -hmm. to have walked upon this recovery movement and realized that there were all these organizations. And all this money that was being raised, not all this, I mean, we need a lot more money, but, you know, tens of millions of dollars, you mm -hmm. know, that's being raised and all these coalitions being built um, and these programs. And there was nothing that really specifically focused on the civic engagement part and actually driving action in state houses and city Like on halls, the ground floor. On, on the ground floor. The people who were actually living in these places. Right. The people who were living in these places, but like showing, like they were showing up, they were having like a recovery uh thing, you know, at, at the legislature, you know, but like, unlike what Nevada is doing, they've got this anti-stigma bill. Mm -hmm. I mean, so it's like, they've actually, they've got, we have an anti-stigma bill. Yes. Yeah. Very recently written and hopefully will be passed shortly. Now. Yeah. And it'll be, yeah. <laughs> so there's, it? so it, it's changing the, the, it's putting, it's basically people first language. Um, so in a legislator, they, at legislature, they have like, uh, they use drug addict and alcoholic and, and, you know, it's really educating and teaching people like how language matters and, and what changing would, that what within would the our bill policy. Do? Well, I mean, I think change, so changing language, I mean, so the number, it the would number, be a law. To, yeah, it would be a law. Isn't so, that a free speech issue? 
No, I mean, let's just put it this way. I mean, you wouldn't be writing and, you know, you wouldn't write uh, county code or state code about uh, disabled veterans and call them retards. Fair mm-hmm. enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I mean, you could, it wouldn't get passed. Yeah, right. But it wouldn't I mean, be taken it, seriously. A lot of that is kind of the similar. I get what you're saying. Yeah. So it's, it's not, a, it's not a, a free speech issue. No. It's just about actual writing of. Of bills and not calling somebody an addict and right, but I mean in a formal document, right? And but that's like step one of mm-hmm. like a much larger process right. because changing the language around how we treat people with uh, SUD and addiction um, it plays a very big part in how people view us, right. sure, and right? how people and, view themselves, and how people view themselves, and then using that as a starting place, we can get so much more done. Mm-hmm. So going back to my example, like. We had this first Nevada Recovery Advocacy Day. We spoke about, you know, uh, getting this anti-stigma bill through. We're going to have people show up to mm-hmm. to help push that, you know. We're, there's also a few good pieces of legislation on the criminal justice front that we're getting behind, uh, such as the, the bail bill, which is going to, you know, stop people being uh, locked up as a result of, like, having an addiction and also be living in poverty, you right. know, when they really should be getting help. So, like, small things like that. Um, make an impact. But traditionally they've been having these capital rallies or like people show up and like, it's like, Hey, we're here. Now what? Now what? Right. Right. And that's the biggest question. It's like that people want to take an action. They want to know what that next step is. So we have to give that to them. Mm -hmm. So in Nevada, and I'm sure you can say this throughout the nation, but, um, I find a lot of times, um, mobilizing our recovery community can be challenging because people stay in their respected pathways to recovery mm-hmm. like what's something that you could tell people or or kind of rally people towards to want to get involved in this movement that that yeah. are stuck in their pathway to recovery and want to just like be in that yeah lane. how do you how do you create a united front with so many different perceptions of what recovery is well i think you've got to drive down the narrative to i mean for me and what really just i think about like what led me to advocacy i mean it was um Sadly, it was the loss of a lot of people I loved, you know, so at the end of the day, was I concerned if like Nick or Greg or anybody else, if they were an AA or if they were on mat or if they were, you know, exercising for, rec- I mean, like didn't matter Smart to me, Smart, it wouldn't matter to me. Like I, I would like them all alive today. Um, so the way that I have done it is like, we, we've got to stop overdose deaths, right? To stop overdose deaths. What's that mean? I mean, that means we need all sorts of things. I mean, you know, I mean, prescriber education, more naloxone, more treatment, you know, we need recovery supports. We need to make sure people are getting warm handoffs at uh, ER rooms after an overdose. Mm-hmm. We need to make sure that they're connected with a peer recovery support specialist. You know, we need to lead people to to their own uh, recovery pathway and their sustained recovery pathway. I, I really try very hard not to get into the politics or uh, into the weeds on the recovery pathways. What do you mean? Well, I think there's, I think if there's one thing that separates folks in the recovery community more, it's the pathway, uh, conversation. Oh, choosing how to yeah. actually yeah. maintain the right pathway. Right. Right yeah. Pathway. yeah. Right. <clears throat> yeah and, is, and, is it fairly recent where, where people are advocating multiple pathways? I believe so. I mean, for me, again, I'm just from my own experience, but yes, like, and I, I think it's been, people have advocated for multiple pathways for a long time, but I think in the public domain, it's been more recent, uh, in, in probably the last five, seven years. Do you find people 
use advocacy as their pathway, like like they're not part of any specific group, but actually using advocacy. I, I mean, I've as their sure I've seen that with a lot of people. I mean, that's not me, but I mean, I've 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 seen or even like a, as a higher power. But I mean, look, I I, I have yes, I mean, I, I have seen that, but again, that okay. Right. That, that, that's your pathway. How can I better support yeah. it? You know, how can I make sure that you're going to, you're going to be okay. And, and maybe I have, you know, whether or not I have my own feelings on that is irrelevant, right. you know, because I'm not going to judge somebody else's, uh, pathway. And, you know, d d and I think there's also a lot of, you know, a lot of information and, and good, uh, research on recovery capital. And I think that, you know, advocacy is a big part of recovery capital. I think, you what know, is recovery capital? I mean, it's all the things in your life. So it's like if somebody's going to be using recovery advocacy as their pathway, there's a lot of other questions that should come with that, right? Like, are you taking care of yourself? Right. Are you plugged into a community? Are you, you know, what what's your what's your advocacy to like, you know, personal personal space ratio? Like, you know, I mean, yeah. like, how are you living your life in addition to just being an advocate? Are you maintaining your house? Maintaining your house, your your health, you know, things like that are always good indicators for whether or not this is working for you. Right. Okay. You and know? there's actually a scale per se to like say if how high your recovery capital is, and there's three parts of your recovery capital essentially so it's social community and physical and you know everybody's recovery capital can be at a different number necessarily but how are you utilizing your own recovery and, and staying in sustained recovery um to show that you know whatever is working works for you essentially so for example a little background for you i'm not in recovery mm -hmm. uh, i have a family member who's an active addiction I was in film school, did a lot of media. I work at uh, a facility I have for like the last six years. So I just kind of merged, decided to do the podcast to, to learn. So if, if I'm asking a bunch of questions that you guys may know, it's because I don't know. Yeah, totally. And that's the that's the whole shtick of this is me learning and, and hopefully the audience as well. Uh, saying that, uh, for example, what you're talking about recovery capital is like getting up and making your bed. Then going to work, balancing then, your checkbook, mm -hmm. then yeah. finding social support, exactly, connecting and reaching with family, out, yeah. and then advocating. Yep, fair enough, fair enough. I'm gonna switch it up a little bit. On uh, your book, pretty much calls for national reform on like every social, economical, and political structure. In my opinion, I don't know if that's what you're going for, but that's kind of how I read it. It's like everything needs to change, literally everything from. School, hospitals, uh, how we manage money in this country. Do you think that the opioid crisis or recovery in general is a big enough catalyst for this? Sure. I think it's the largest catalyst for it, actually, um, because, you know, the math, getting people to have these conversations is so important because the math is clearly on our side. Yeah. Right. We Well, we've seen massive social change around health issues or even social issues that uh, directly impact a smaller proportion of Americans. Here in the United States, uh, you've got about 45 million Americans who are impacted, directly impacted in one way or another by addiction, right? So you're looking at about 20, any given day, anywhere from 21 to 23 million Americans that need help, need, that, that, that qualify for a substance use disorder, that need help, need treatment right now, uh, and then you've got anywhere between 22, 23 million Americans living in long-term recovery. So roughly about 45 million 
Um, that's about one in three households in the United States. Sure. It's a lot of people. Yeah. You know, so uh, the, the tricky part is connecting with them, right? And getting it. So it's like, that's why I say like the shame and the stigma are still like public enemy, enemy number one, because that's what keeps a lot of these folks from having these discussions at the dinner table, uh, having these discussions within political forums, having these discussions at work, you know, being open about it. Um, it, you look at like the history of the LGBT movement, you know, that was a very, you know, considered a very fringe group, uh, when they got active, uh, until people started coming out of the closet and mothers and fathers started identifying with their gay kids and people started to realize they had a gay employee or employer. Um, and, 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 and it changed the conversation and it changed the dialogue and it led us to a place where, you know, three decades later, uh, gay marriage is the law of the land. So I, I think it's, uh, it could be the largest issue. And I say could be, cause we're not there yet, but it could be the largest issue that could really, um, you know, help harness this change across all levels. Yeah. You know, but it requires action and, and, and it requires organization. And that's like where we have failed is on the organization front. Do you think there are enough resources out there for LGBTQ communities for no. recovery? No, absolutely not. Like, like the LGBTQ communities need more access to services because it affects that population at a much higher rate. Um, you said this in your book and, yeah. and I don't quite understand how, how that is quantified, I guess. Like, how is somebody uh, affected at a higher rate than, well, I mean, how can you, you be addicted at, at a higher rate than someone else? So, I mean, you could look at my story, for example, and I'll, just, I'll speak from the, from the from lens of my story. I mean, it's, it's like layering shame over shame. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, like, for me, it was like a double impact. So, it was like I was, I had, you know, I, I grew up in the 80s and the 90s and kind of like a picture-perfect family, you know, the fact of being gay and like, not being able to talk about it because my parents would have nothing to do with it. But I mean, my mom, you know, God bless her, she's amazing now and like everything's fine. And like she's very, she <laughs> loves it and she's she's in love with my boyfriend and like all this stuff. And you know, thanks, so, mom. So yeah, but but I mean, back then, you know, when there were when there were like signs or like inklings, like I mean, there was like these drawn out like huge arguments with my dad and my mom breaking into tears and the Bible getting busted out and like mm -hmm. all that stuff that you know shoves someone right back into the closet. And now, you know, I was living like this double life, right? And this is before I it's got not addicted, triple. right? Before I got addicted, and so it was like um, I was terrified of being myself. Right. And so I was lying to everybody around me because I thought I, I didn't think I had to, I had to, it was like a survival technique for me, uh, during those, mm -hmm. during those years. Um, and then I found something to deal with that. I mean, that was like my personal trauma, right? I, I ended up, I broke my ankle, broke my knee, got hooked on Oxy. And it was like, oh my gosh, like this solves all my problems. Right. And, and, and we see a lot of that, um, in the gay community. I mean, and, and it is still, I mean, even, even in 2019, it is still very hard for some people to still come out of the closet. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people who, um, you know, um, that, that shame and that silence has led them to like some really dangerous self harm. You know, I mean, I, I spent m lots of time, uh, you know, dealing with like mental health issues also and like suicide attempts and like, I mean, so it's like, yes, it impacts our community at a much higher rate uh, just because you are layering all that pain on top. I guess I don't understand what the what the term higher rate means. 
in this context? Like are more people in this community getting addicted? Is it, yeah. is it happening faster than the different communities? Well, like, like, with, yeah, with LGBT. If that makes any sense. Yeah. So with like LGBT teens, I believe the, it, that they are four times, it, it's somewhere between four and six times more likely Fair uh, to, to, to develop a substance mm-hmm. use disorder than, than their peers. If that gives you just like a quantitative. No, yeah, awesome. yeah. Sure. That makes a lot more sense to yeah. me than, than the, yeah. I wouldn't call it a blanket statement, but yeah. just at a higher rate. I guess I, I just didn't understand. Yeah. So we need more advocates for that community then? We do. We do. We need more advocates. I mean, it, it, it shouldn't be like advocates for that community. I think like we need, so I think, you know, one of the things and I write about it in the book a little bit and I've been touching on it more is we need more culturally competent right. treatment and recovery resources. And I think that even for me and like my treatment experience, like I went to just kind of like this very standard middle of the road treatment center. It wasn't that great. And, you know, supposedly like had all these tracks, but it was just like pretty much, you know, inoculated me into 12 step. Like we need more culturally competent services. That's like, that what does that deals, mean? Well, it deals with the LGBT population, sure. deals with communities of color, you know, available services for adolescents and teens, language uh, barriers, language barriers, women, you know, transgender, like we need services that are specific to these communities because these communities all have their own, I mean, we all deal with a lot of the same problems, but there's a lot of very specific mm-hmm. um, things that need to be dealt with trauma-wise. Right. Um, you know, I, it, it probably would have um, benefited me to have some sort of counseling that was specific uh, to the LGBTQ community. You know, um, that's, that's what I mean when I say culturally competent. Fair enough. So you talk a lot about good facilities and bad facilities in your book. How does one tell? That's the, that is the million dollar question. I deal with that every single day. I had a situation this morning where I was dealing with it. I mean, it's, the problem is, is that they all look the same. Yeah. Um, completely the same. And, 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 and sadly today it's still a gut judgment call with the information that you have available to you. Um, is there something like maybe right off the bat, if somebody's researching place that they can look into? Sure. I mean, I would make sure a, that they're all, you know, they, they should have all their certifications, you know, mm-hmm. they, they should have Jake, they should be, I mean, these are just basic standards. It is not a qualifier for whether or not they're good, but it's a good starting space, mm-hmm. but, you know, CARF and Jayco certified. Uh, it's also like super important that like when you call, if you pick up the phone and call the center that you're like talking to somebody who <laughs> yeah, actually a, works at the center. Yeah. It's right. not like a, not a call center. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, I, I would be very weary of inbound calls mm-hmm. selling you treatment. Right. Somebody who calls you. Yeah. Someone who calls you. Those How would they, they even know? Well, they, they there's, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. They, they, Psychic. yeah, they buy these lists. So I would be very careful with inbound calls, you know, something like when you, um, you know, when you're researching it, make sure that, you know, their staff that they have there, you know, ask the question, are these full-time staff? Like, is your medical doctor a full-time doctor? Because mm-hmm. a lot of these places, they'll throw up a bunch of stat- great names on their website and then- Those people don't know, work there. Well, they work there, but they like work like five hours a month, right. you know, and they like sign prescriptions and, mm-hmm. and doctor's orders from afar. Um, thing, things like that are, are super, super important. Um, you know, there's so much information available now on Google too. Um, some quick searches in terms of like any type of, uh, lawsuits or deaths at the facilities. That's always important to kind of know. Um, but that, that's like one of the, the, 
the frustrating things today is it is still so hard to tell the good from the bad. And it is such a crapshoot when it comes to treatment. Are we getting better? Yes. Like, are, like, is the nation woke on this problem? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, it is woke on this. You problem. think so? Yeah, I think it's I think that that totally. yeah, that there's a there's a desire to move in the right direction. Sure. Um, you know, regulations, marketing, you know, truth and marketing practices, things like that are so important. But even with all that, like the patient brokering, right. I mean, all these things you think about it, it's been certainly just in the last three to four years that it's really you know, been thrust onto the scene as this massive problem. And yeah. while I hold these bad actors and these providers and a lot of people should be sitting in jail and they should be shut down and like what they do and how the, 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 the extent that they take advantage of our community is absolutely revolting. Um, there's also an equal part of anger at the foot of like local state and federal government for allowing this to go on yeah. so long. And, 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 and at the end of the day, like they are just as complicit as anyone else because they always saw until this became this hot button political issue, they always saw addiction treatment as like the stepchild of healthcare mm -hmm. and sometimes yeah. didn't even put it in the healthcare bucket. And so it was like all of this, all of these bad practices and all these bad actors were blooming up everywhere right under the nose of federal regulators and state regulators and licensing boards. And nobody just really cared because it was addiction, you know, yeah. and they're like, what, are, we don't care what happens to those filthy addicts, right. you know? So it's like, <laughs> as soon as the issue, you know, starts to, to hit the national headlines and become a political issue, everybody wants to look under the hood and see what the problem is. And there's mm -hmm. this huge mess. And now we're having congressional hearings when, you know, really it should have never gotten to this place. So, you know, there's a lot of different, um, entities that need to be held accountable for this. In your book, you talk about uh, there needs to be a solid definition of what recovery is. What? You laugh. I guess because I was having this discussion. I was in I was in Nashville this weekend with like a whole bunch of recovery advocates and harm reductionists. And um, I had like this moment of like super frustration because we were talking about recovery and harm reduction. And I mean, you could go around a room of like, 20 of like the most that's kind of where my question comes from educated again, yes. people that have do, been doing this work for a long time and every single one of them has a, a different, different definition mm -hmm. of of what they mean yeah and then the point too of like is medication assisted treatment harm reduction or is that all part of recovery? recovery like like there are so many layers to you know and, and we should be working together, right? It's the continuum of care. Mm -hmm. People are practicing harm reduction, you know, they could potentially practice recovery. I think, I think, but I think, I do believe it's like a fine line. I think that like, again, the, the word recovery, I believe harm reduction is an inoculation and an entry point for mm -hmm. recovery. Exactly. But so is treatment. Right. Right. So it's like, I'm, I'm not saying that like, those two are any different. I mean, they are different, but like in terms of the definition of recovery, I will give you my personal definition of recovery. <laughs> sure. I mean, so recovery for me has always been when you have left treatment, when you have really entered into that, that second phase, it's what you do to maintain your wellness for the rest of your life. It is all the supports that come with that. Um, it is also a quality of life measurement for me. You know, so it's like I, I I see people who go out there and they claim their recovery purely based on how many days they haven't mm. used crack cocaine. Right. Yet they're out there, 
selling and buying, you know, treatment center patients and, you know, running up scams on people's credit cards and insurance companies. I'm like, dude, you are not in, like, you might be in some form of recovery, but not my type of recovery. Like, I mean, it's gotta be an all encompassing type thing. Um, I think it gets tricky, you know, when we start throwing everything under the sun, under the the definition of recovery, because from, and and I can, and I also want to say, like, I appreciate and understand where people come from under that definition. And and that is okay with me. And I think that's a good debate to be having. However, from my side of the dirt on the fight for funding, okay. like recovery is so vastly underfunded. If, if any funding at all, we see massive amounts in comparison, we see massive amounts of money of the current pool of money going towards treatment, prevention, even harm reduction mm-hmm. and naloxone and things like that, uh, needle exchanges. But when it comes to like funding recovery supports, like the things that actually save my lives, which is like peer recovery support services, housing, uh, workforce development, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, sustainable recovery initiatives. Um, Just keeping somebody sane and happy and alive. Right. We get such a shaft in terms of the the funding. So it's like once we start saying, oh, well, we're going to throw harm reduction in recovery and treatment. Well, treatment already is kind of like meshed together with recovery, which is like sure. really annoying for me right. when I go and I like, and a perfect example, I, I go before Congress, testify on need for more recovery funding. Here's what recovery looks like. You know, I'm sitting with the uh, cross table from Kellyanne Conway and another thing. And, and the, the, the you know, Democrats, Republicans, they all say the same thing. They're like, oh yeah, but we just like appropriated you know, uh, $2.1 billion for treatment and recovery. I'm like, no, 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 no. You didn't like, like you, you did it for treatment. They're like, and they always, so they co-opted. It's like treatment and recovery. And so like without our own like lane, right. we get screwed big time when it comes to funding. Do you think it's because we are saying, oh, you went to treatment, you're good now? Like that's the misconception. Is that like- Well, the misconception, it's a misconception and it's also a misunderstanding of like what what's actually needed. So it's like there's, you know, 2016 Surgeon General's report, you know, which is like sitting somewhere on a shelf at HHS collecting dust, obviously, um, states all of this stuff out. It talks about the five-year, you know, the importance of the five-year continuum um, of care. And um, there's this rush to like get people treatment and like throw them back out into society without any of the supports that are needed to like maintain their wellness. From what you're saying, in my opinion, the difference between treatment and recovery is treatment seems like big business that maybe doesn't quite need that money. And and recovery is the ground floor level stuff like yeah so like it's like a whole nother like we could have to do a whole yes, episode yes, on yes, this yes. but like there's there are I I think there's this rush of like yes let's get people into treatment like your kid's gonna die we need to get them to treatment well I have uh, instances and 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 have learned a lot over the last very short period of time there's a lot of people I wouldn't send back to treatment, mm. you know, that actually would probably be better. And for example, you don't have to name any names. I don't understand. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's plenty of folks who like, you know, it, it would be better to maybe get them some sort of like a short-term detox, mm-hmm. get them a peer support specialist, get them into a recovery home, you know, for the cost and, and also on the cost saving size and economic side, like, you know, sending someone to, you know, 20, and I can think of, of plenty of examples in my own personal experience. It would have made more sense instead of $25,000 for treatment for a month uh, to get me some health care, uh, you know, maybe get me insurance, 
uh, put me in a recovery house, get me a peer support specialist, maybe spend $5,000 to detox me. I mean, I could have probably created an entire year of services under, or, or maybe even longer for what it would have cost for one month of treatment. Yeah. And it would have been more local, like a, a local localized. Local. Right. Yeah. Lo and sometimes like it, it, it you know, I, I think every instance is, 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 is it, it needs to be evaluated differently. You know, we know, um, their uh what are the assessments and whatnot i mean assessments everybody needs an assessment and the assessment needs to go beyond like how good's your insurance because that's how assessments, <laughs> right? a lot of assessments go these days these days but um you know in assessments sometimes it does make more sense to keep somebody localized yeah you know and i think there's a rush for people to like send them across the country you know and and um sometimes the best treatment is right in your backyard yeah to learn those tools at home because once you get back home you know yeah like wow i'm going right back to the environment i was in before right Yep. So we were talking about the definition of recovery. Um, do you think that that definition can be found with these metrics that you talk about in your book, like standardized, defined metrics of what, again, how do you quantify somebody getting better? It's personal. I think it, yeah, like Chelsea said, yeah, it is, it is. But how do you do that for four, like to raise to money? To show the to efficacy show, is what you're asking? Well, no, how do you show the government or, or, or these? Well, that's a great question. So I, I'm going to, I am going to jump in and I'm going to beat up on the federal government for a second because they're <laughs> there. We do need that metric. That metric that's, is so important yeah. because it will show how, why we need money that goes towards recovery. Um, every year since the beginning of time, for as long as I can remember, there's the NISDA study that comes out every year, which is the annual survey on drug use, right? So it's very much along the lines of like the census of like what people are using, what substances, what age they're initiating with, what substance they're initiating with, what the overdose rates are, blah, 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 all that stuff. Uh, it, around September every year, there's a big press conference, Secretary of Health and Human Services, the Director of the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, the President usually talks about it. I mean, it's this big release of these numbers. Um, you know, X amount of people died of heroin this year. This was the age group that was most impacted. Uh, here were, you know, very granular information. like. Sure. The census on drug use <laughs> like why don't we have that same type of census for like people who have like found I, recovery I right agree. that's and I'm, that's my question is how do you how do you find those gra grains well like, i mean it, we we know how to the, the government the federal government knows how to do it and they in fact they've actually promised us now for two years that it was actually supposed to be uh last year 2017 we were promised that in the 2018 report uh, that those numbers would be included this past year. Again, they said that it wasn't ready yet, but they were going to start doing that. Um, and, and, and there are some metrics that are out there that show, you know, the independent groups and, and, and a lot of good, there's, there's some really good researchers who have started to dive in on the recovery side, but we really do need a, a, a full commissioned, uh, federal government report, uh, on recovery, uh, rates, uh, much along the line, not, not just like a segmented report either, like something as big as the NISDA. Well, and collecting good data, like right. that's really important for recovery community organizations and mm -hmm. anybody that is, you know, providing any service about recovery. And healthcare providers and insurance payers need to be involved in this fight too, because payers could be doing this as well. You know, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of outcomes that are tracked on every other, you know, disease model that we have in the country, but but not this. And that's because it is a hard thing to track, but it can be done. I'm just hoping when they do do it, it's it's in a way that it's less likely to be corruptible or right. used negatively. Yeah. Hmm. Right. I mean, along the lines of like pharmaceutical companies paying mm -hmm. for the research and things right, like right, that. Right. Sure. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the Voices Project. 
Um, so the Voices Project started as just a storytelling platform. Um, it, it was like this phenomenon of people just jumping out, being like, hey, I want to tell my story. And so we provided that space for them and uh, used social media to amplify. And it was, it was largely how the platform was built in the beginning. Um, but then people wanted to take that ne next step, which was get involved and take action. So the Voices Project is now a, a C3 organization, 501C3. Uh, we are uh, focused on kind of like social impacts and training within communities on recovery advocacy, uh, leadership development, things like that. Um, but we also um, do a lot of local work uh, around harm reduction and housing. Um, so the Voices Project is is a uh, an emerging kind of organization that that we are still figuring out what the people want to do with it because it's not necessarily like the the mission statement has been massaged a little bit because we keep seeing a, a need and a gap and and something that people really want to be involved with so so we're kind of letting um the community help us develop it what it looks like but largely it is a it is an impact platform it still is a uh, storytelling we've had thousands of folks who have come out of the closets you know per se and told their recovery stories and then learned to become recovery advocates in their communities. Um, but we're, it, it, it's a new organization, you know, and it wasn't for the first two years, it wasn't an organization. It was just a name. So for people who, you know, are still wanting to keep their recovery, um, anonymous, mm -hmm. like what would you recommend to people who may be listening that, you know, why it's important to share their story? Well, I, you know, that's a very personal decision, right. Uh, for a lot of people. And, and, you know, the advice I give on that is, I, and I and I try not to to really push people too far to be like, you know, you really should be out there about this because I also realize that like still in 2019, people lose their kids, people lose their jobs, people are turned down job opportunities, people can't get life insurance, they have problem with with getting, you know, uh, insurance bills paid. Like discrimination is still very very real, mm -hmm. um, and and while I am at a point where I'm not experiencing that anymore at the same level as a lot of people. I need to acknowledge that it's still a real thing thing today. That being said, um, for those that do decide, and I think it's a it's something you know, like you'll know, you know, if 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 you're in recovery, you'll know the moment that you want to tell your story. And it's a very organic thing that nobody can really push you to. It's a it's a personal journey. Um, once you do though, it's one of the most uh gratifying things you'll ever do. I'll Liberating. say that. Liberating, gratifying tremendous amount of a personal accountability that comes with it that that that's very uh freeing um but it, it is important for the ones that do make that determination and are able to do it that they do do it uh and i will say to folks who are considering it and think they're in a place that they can do it they should do it because we need to do it for everyone else who can't mm. i love that on that i'm gonna say thank you do you want to plug some things sure Please. check out american <laughs> fix uh you know it's available in any bookstore reach out to me on social media send me an email you can reach me at ryanhampton.org um check out the the conference we've got coming to to las vegas july 11th 12th 20, 2019 with ffr uh mobilize recovery we're doing it in partnership with facebook uh and you could check that out at mobilizerecovery.org and uh hopefully we could do this again when i'm here in july yeah love it uh I got one more question that's not a, how'd you hurt your ankle? Hiking. Hiking. Yeah. It, it was like, not, like, it was not at me. Everybody's like, well, a football. I'm like, I don't play football. I didn't Why think does it, it have football? to be football? Yeah. I thought <laughs> I was going to, I was going to guess 
like just random walking down the street and tripped on a rock. That could actually happen today <laughs> while I'm in recovery because I am a klutz. <laughs> so too. yeah. Are you gonna write another book? Possibly. Fair enough. Yeah. All right, Ryan. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. So much Thanks for, for having here. me. Yeah. This was a blast. Thank, thank you. and listen on all the major streaming platforms itunes google play stitcher give us a rating on that itunes apple podcast thing we uh, need them follow us on social media at recover everything go to our website recovereverything.com to tell us a story uh, reach out to us we'd love to hear from you